0: this is the ticker IR magazine podcast for investor relations community this episode is brought to you in partnership with POS by public.com providing tools for IR teams to engage with retail shareholders I'm your host Noemi Di Stefano very exciting episode this month We have some top-notch guests coming up on the show, including the director of IR at the Turkish company Galata Wind, who joins us later in the show to discuss the importance of IR during a company IPO and shareholder targeting challenges for those newly listed companies. So stay tuned for that. But first, directly from our new podcast, studio at IR Magazine's HQs in London. Let me introduce you my first two guests, IR Magazine's very own senior reporter Tim Human. Hi Tim. Hi Noemi. And senior conference producer at IR Magazine and corporate secretary Lawrence Taylor. Hi Lawrence.
1: Hi, good to be here.
0: How are you guys? How are you doing?
1: Very good, yeah. It's a lovely room you've got here. Yeah. Very professional.
0: We have some socials going out. You should check those, the picture. Yeah. Tim, how are you?
2: Yeah, I'm appreciating our new like um, sort of 60% uh, soundproofing of this room.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is really nice indeed. Good, good. So happy to have you both on the show this month. So we are reunited today to talk about ESG and get a feel of how things are going in the space, what's happening with all the regulations, frameworks and whatnot. But also to cast an eye to our upcoming ESG integration from Europe event, which takes place in less than two weeks here in London. So, Lawrence, let me come to you first. You are obviously involved in the preparation of this, in the planning of the forum. You are one of those people who makes the magic happen. So, give us an overview of the upcoming event. Maybe let's start with the (laughs) 5Ws, perfect reporter style uh how original of me we know what it is but tell us who's coming where is it
1: yeah Yeah, no i don't know who the five (laughs) w's are but i'm happy to kind of give a a, an introduction to the event and you know what what the what we're hoping it will achieve um it's weird being on this side of the discussion because i'm normally. Um, used to moderating, so I'll I'll fight the impulse to answer your questions with more questions. But um, yeah, this is our our biannual ESG forum in Europe, uh, which is designed to bring together Europe's IR and governance communities with investors and increasingly sustainability professionals as well uh, to discuss holistically, hence the integration part of uh, of the title, how the landscape of ESG is changing in Europe. Uh, how shareholder expectations are evolving and what all this means in practice for IR and governance teams. So the challenge with this event, uh, but also what makes it uh, unique, is the diverse range of sectors, capsizes and seniority levels present in the audience. Uh, and of course, the ESG issues that are material to each are going to be very different. So you have to try and balance the big issues uh, affecting everyone with more targeted sector specific, size specific discussions as well. Uh, Which way, this year, we're putting more emphasis on audience interaction, breakout roundtable discussions, uh, where attendees can choose the topic most relevant to them. But we can talk more about that later.
0: Okay. Yeah, sure. And of course, uh, I mean, the topic of the event is ESG. But I just wanted to ask if there was within this macro topic, let's call it like that, uh, a big overarching theme uh, of the event, um, perhaps in in the context of geopolitical Mm. tensions. What would you say is the the overarching theme?
1: Yeah, it's hard coming up with a theme that isn't just rephrasing ESG as a sentence or something. But I would say this year it's very much how to manage changing ESG priorities. So I think ESGs are in a weird place in Europe right now uh, with the war in Ukraine and the energy scarcity problem that that's created, also the macroeconomic challenges, inflation, higher interest rates. That has seemed to have forced some companies to and investors to reevaluate some of their ESG priorities. Uh, and focus more on the immediate needs of the business. Uh, but for others, it's had the opposite effect and actually catalyzed the momentum behind DSG. And we're also seeing this huge regulatory push across Europe for companies to be more transparent about their environmental footprint and transition plans, about how they're going to achieve their, their targets uh, with things like the CSRD impacting issuers directly, the SFRD impacting investors, which is obviously going to trickle down to the companies they invest in as well. Um, so, yeah, how can, uh, I guess the themes? is, how can an IR and, and governance team govern and communicate all of this um, when ESG itself is going through a sort of identity crisis right now?
0: Okay. And uh, in terms, you mentioned that there is going to be, in terms of like new elements, there is going to be more interaction between the audience, panelists, more roundtables discussion. Mm-hmm. Is there any, um, say, zoom or focus on a particular maybe panel that wasn't there in the previous events that um, we will find at this one
1: yeah well i think a lot of this is is kind of bringing the conversation up to date to some extent so you know the macroeconomic challenges we we touched on that a little bit last year but we're in a different place now um, so start by kind of setting the context asking how investors are thinking about esg issues yeah, like you say, how the war in Ukraine and macroeconomic challenges have influenced their sustainable sustainable investment strategies. As you said, yeah, also doing a lot more around biodiversity. So this is something we touched on a little bit last year uh, with the inception of the TNFD and Nature-Based Targets Initiative. Uh, but since our last conference, we've had the COP15 summit in Montreal with a landmark biodiversity agreement. So we'll be discussing a bit what's changed, what that means for public companies as well. Uh, And then finally, this year, uh, something we didn't look at last year is is kind of taking a a more focused look at the S of ESG. So how human capital management issues have changed in the era of remote working, how to communicate your company culture and well-being uh, and knowing what diversity and inclusion information your peers are collecting and, and what investors want to see.
0: Yeah, biodiversity, like you mentioned, is, is very interesting. I mean, uh, COP15 was uh, a crucial summit uh, that lasted, what, like two weeks, I think, <laughs> of negotiations and ultimately ended in with nations agreeing to some sort of, you know, uh, plan to protect... Uh, a third of the planet in the next uh, eight years—a yeah. uh, landmark deal, I think the BBC journalists defined this. Um, but yeah, it will—it uh, will be interesting to see what the panelists will have to say and the advice they will have to to offer to companies, I.R. professionals, etc.
1: Yeah, and with all of these things, there's there's always kind of two sides. So some people think that you know it's a landmark deal. There's going to be loads more pressure on public companies. Other people say it's you know it hasn't gone far enough. So. And yeah, hopefully a a good range of opinions.
0: Yeah. Uh, Tim, let me come to you. So biodiversity is only one aspect of the ESG trend, of course. Um, There is a lot more to it. I mean, as uh, Lawrence was mentioning, there is a lot of regulations and frameworks going on. And um, yeah, I just wanted to get a sense from you of what is uh, going on with uh, these regulations at this point. Uh, Give us an update.
2: That would be great sure i think um it's definitely going to be one of the key areas that people want to talk about at the forum you know what's happening with uh, national sustainability regulations and then also developments with you know reporting standards and frameworks um it may not be everyone's favorite topic uh to talk about even how sort of complex and, and confusing it can be um but it's definitely really important and we're getting to a point now where some of these new standards are gonna be reported on over the next couple of years and so people need to start thinking Seriously about it. So, I'm sure there'll be talk about what's happening in the UK, where there's a patchwork of different sustainability regulations. Uh, we'll be talking about what's happening in Europe with Europe's new uh, sustainability standards. What's happening in the US with the SEC climate disclosure rule is always of interest, even though this is a Europe focused event. And then the final thing will be the International Sustainability Standards Board's work, um, which everybody, wherever you are in the world, is going to be looking at and wondering what they're going to need to disclose in that area.
0: And I guess, obviously, with so much going on, the the question would be, how can companies decide where to focus their attention with so much going on? Is there something they should prioritize first? It depends on their jurisdiction or jurisdictions. How, How can they manage?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And, you know, things that companies will be thinking about related to, for example, the ISSB standards is, you know, one, what are they going to need to disclose? Um, You know, two, how is that going to fit in with the reporting they've already been doing under things like SASB standards, you know, alongside TCFD recommendations? And then also, how are these uh, new standards going to fit alongside whatever they're doing on a national level as well? So sort of lots of questions for companies. But um, I think the forum is a really good opportunity for people to come along and hear what other people are thinking about, what other people are planning for. And then you can get an idea of sort of any gaps in your own thinking, any gaps in your own reporting that you could be looking at and um one person who spoke at one of our forums last year i think put it really well where they said you don't need to be a, a f- kind of a have deep knowledge of everything that's going on there's, there's actually too much to really fully read up on everything that could potentially affect your company but it's great to have a general understanding of a lot of things and then you can start to prioritize you know what you need to think about now what maybe you can put off and think about in six months or a year's time you know and how to have those kind of conversations with your management and board as well so everybody knows what's really important you know, in the short term and long term.
0: Yeah, well, good points. And because you mentioned last year, um, so I was uh, we were discussing offline as something that was kind of like forecast at the um, ESG integration forum US last year. And that forecast was around the DS in, in the ESG acronym. And the, the fact that this year in 2023, there was going to be more focus on the social aspects and, and the actual workers. Is that something that you see happening?
2: Yeah, I think it's another area that's going to be, you know, there's going to be great conversation about it at the forum. Um, We we had an event last year where an an investor predicted what some of the top ESG issues were going to be in 2023. And they said they expected it to be the year of the worker. And that's for two reasons. Um, One, because there's some industries where people are still struggling to hire. So they've got recruitment problems. But then there are other industries that did very well during the pandemic that are having to lay people off. And that, that is then something that companies have to deal with. And since we had that, that conversation over the last uh, two or three months, you know, we've seen huge numbers of layoffs in the uh, tech sector Big specifically. Tech I think that the number in the U.S. now is something like 100,000 people laid off. Um, so what's been really interesting to see is, is how companies are approaching that. And you know, with some of the tech companies, you've seen a lot of you know, explanation, commentary from the management about how they're going to support the people who are losing their jobs. You know, how much uh, notice period they're going to be paid, whether they're going to be given support to find more employment, you know, whether they're going to get mental health support as well. And so there's a lot of focus on um, you know, how companies are dealing with sort of layoffs. And I think it speaks to a conversation we've been having for a couple of years about stakeholder capitalism and how companies can't just focus on their shareholders. They need to think about all their stakeholders a lot more. And so this is a bit of a test of that, you know, even in this difficult time, where you need to let people go, you know, can you do it in, in, a, in a sort of an understanding way that treats people well and not just prioritizing the needs of your shareholders that want to see you cut costs?
0: And are you seeing changes in, in the way companies communicate about employees um, recently?
2: I'd say there's, there's been a few different kind of approaches that companies have taken. Um, as I was saying, I think like tech companies, you know, pe- uh, people like Meta, for example, did a lot of commentary about this um, online, on social media. There was a lot of information about the benefits that people were receiving Mm. that were being laid off. Um, You know, sort of kind of the opposite extreme example is what Twitter did. Um, Twitter, of course, is a private company now, so it's sort of got different reporting obligations, different pressures on it. But that was a very brutal layoff. And given the the, the focus that companies now have on their, their, their employees, on their recruitment processes and so on, you know, you've got to think about how some how an actions like that are going to yeah. affect that company's reputation long term.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And, uh, Lawrence, perhaps there are any speakers around this that you know we should look forward to meeting at the at the show.
1: Yeah, we'll. we'll see, I think it will come up in in various in various sessions. But what what's interesting is the is the, this term social washing that I've kind of been hearing more yeah. often now as well. It's kind of. You know, as with the more well-known phrase greenwashing, that kind of gap between the comp- what the company says it's going to do and how it acts. So yeah, Tim, they were yeah really good examples. Kind of the Twitter example, of course, a really good example to kind of illustrate that. But um, yeah, I think that people are looking at this, investors and, and stakeholders more broadly, are looking at this uh, more uh, more closely. And, and as one panelist put it at the last event, we're going from a, a kind of tell me environment uh, to a show me environment. Sure
0: great um thanks guys so before we go into onto a short break Lawrence uh I wanted to ask you just for our listeners how and until when is it possible to register to attend the forum
1: yeah so that's uh it's really easy you just go to irmagazine.com forward slash esg europe um, and you can register there on the website
0: and they can do it until like a couple of days before, right?
1: Didn't do it the, the day of if people uh, can can hurry over in the morning. But yeah, it's available now, so
0: great. We hope to see some of our listeners or all of our listeners in there. Also I wanted to ask you, Lawrence, uh, just give us an overview of upcoming events after the ESG Integration Forum, in Europe.
1: Sure. Yeah, so the ESG Integration Forum is really exciting. Of course, it's the first event of the year. Uh, we also have our West Coast Think Tank on the 22nd of March. So this is a completely off the records, free to attend uh, um, event exclusively for senior IROs. Uh, we have our IR Awards Ceremony in New York on the 30th of March. This is a great opportunity to celebrate and recognize the best best practice in investor relations and, and catch up with uh, with old friends. And I'm also working on, uh, at the moment, our Canada IR Forum on April the 5th, which is also just before our Canada Awards in the evening. And it's interesting to see the same topics come up at different events, but in completely different contexts in in different geographies. So, yeah, more information on all of these um, and other events on our website.
0: (sighs) Yes, of course. I'm looking forward to, I'm hoping I will manage to go to one of these events eventually. Yeah. Let's see. Um, Tim, uh, thanks, Lawrence. Uh, Tim, before we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to add uh, or share with our listeners, things you're working on?
2: Sure. I think as, as Lawrence alluded to, uh, we're all quite busy at the moment with various different things. Um, so on the on the editorial side, we've got our spring magazine uh, coming out soon. So So deadlines are coming up. Uh, Two articles I've been working on for that magazine. Uh, One is on sort of roadshow and IR engagement plans for 2023. So I just spoke to uh, you know several different IR professionals from around the world and just asked them how they're thinking about this year. And it was really interesting to hear that you know some people kind of treated last year as a bit of a tester for how they were going to balance in person and virtual. They felt they got it right, and then this year they're just going to do the same thing. But then You've got other, other companies, for example, you know, based in Asia, for example, in Hong Kong, where they're still coming out of three years of, you know, uh, virtual engagement. And so they really need to think again and have a kind of a reset year in terms of how they're interacting with the investment community. So that's one article. And then the other one um, is about a really interesting topic, especially here in the UK, uh, which is shareholder democracy. And so we're seeing a big push in lots of different ways um, for retail investors to have more of a say in the companies that they're invested in, yeah. you know, whether that be through your online brokerage account, whether it be through your, your pension fund, whatever it is, you know, lots of people are looking at how retail investors can utilize their shareholder rights that they should have to have a say to vote at AGMs. And, you know, part of that is changes to regulation and part of that is technology and using technology um, to make sure that those rights flow through to the end investor. And so it's an interesting area in general, but also it kind of asks the question, what happens for companies then? Will you suddenly have thousands more retail investors trying to ring up the IR department, you know, asking for information or trying to show up at the uh, annual general meeting? And so we're sort of looking at the big picture and then also what are the impacts that are going to happen for uh, companies in the future?
0: That's great. Very interesting. And uh, I mean, the spring issue is coming up in four weeks from now so yeah stay tuned for that thank you uh thank you both for being with me today we will now go into a short break but don't go away as shortly i'm joined by my next guest Muge Yussel director of IR and sustainability at Wind, to talk everything IR in the context of an IPO so stay with us
3: Companies are always looking to build stronger relationships with current and potentially new investors. If you are a public company, Pulse by public.com can help you build deeper relationships with your investors. Share your company narrative with innovative formats. Make investor information more discoverable. Reach retail investors where they're already engaged and much more. Pulse by public.com helps IR teams engage their retail shareholders amplify company communications and gain actionable insights into retail investor audiences visit public.com slash pulse to schedule a free demo
0: welcome back you are listening to the ticker podcast with me Noemi Stefano. for this second part of the show I'm joined by Muge Yusel, Director of IR and Sustainability at Turkish company Galata Wind. Hi Muge. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. So, just to to start our conversation, tell us more um about your company, about your role at the firm. Um yeah.
4: So Galata Wind is uh, the first green IPO that was done here in Turkey. They got listed back in uh, April 2021. We're a renewable energy company with three wind plants and two solar plants. I came on board actually a little after the IPO, which is why I wrote this piece on why um, the IPO process and being part of it is so important. Because I've been doing IR uh, with Doge Automotive for 14 years, and um, now at Galetta Wind, I am actually building up the function, building up the sustainability side for the company, and of course, looking um, for the corporate governance side of things as well. Thank you for, for
0: that. You just mentioned uh, a piece that you wrote. So for those listeners who are not aware of this, Mugia wrote a piece for IR Magazine about the role of IR during uh, an IPO. The article is available on our website, irmagazine.com. But I just wanted to give our listeners a glimpse of, of some of the topics that you touched on on that article um, and and discuss them on, on the podcast with you. Maybe just to, to start, what would you say are the top three reasons why the role of an IRO is paramount during an IPO?
4: Sure. I would say number one here is we can look internally. The IRO, or actually an experienced IRO, is very important because the person will be able to get the spokesperson, C-level, the board on top of things for the IPO for the messaging, for story creating, for what should be done in the IPO process. And one thing that is that is probably not so clear when the IPO process starts is uh, the actual awareness of all the necessities, the responsibilities, and the obligations the listed company has, the, all the regulations that they have to go by. Number two, the IRO would be the single point of contact. Meaning you have, you know, the investment bank on the one side, you have the company on the other side, you have advisors, you have analysts and uh, a lot of parties involved in the IPO process. When you have more than one person delivering the information, sometimes misunderstandings happen. Now, internal participants, you know, all the internal uh, C-level that is part of the process, they have a different idea but they don't have the knowledge of being public. So they know the company extremely well, but what should be all part of the IPO process should then actually be limited to just one person and one person delivering it only. Yeah. Number three Obviously, it's the communication strategy. You have a story, you have a story to tell, but nobody knows the company. So in your pre-IPO process or during the IPO, when you actually start telling about the company, you have to create a story about discovering this company. You have to position the company in such a place that it will show that you are different. Would you? No, sorry. Now continue, please. Uh, So the communication strategy has to be talked internally and then presented externally. The IRO has to prep the spokesperson here, you know, make trial runs and ask the very hard questions and actually show the spokesperson how to answer certain questions. Because sometimes the questions require for the company to answer trade secrets, And you don't necessarily want to go into that piece or say, oh, no, I can't say anything about that. But you can ensure that by knowing your peers, you can put in reference how you're doing it differently. Now, obviously, in the post-IPO side, you have um, the investment community that already listened to you, and then you have the new potential investors that haven't still heard you. So for the ones that already know about you, You have to keep explaining and updating and, you know, letting them know what's been going on, what you've achieved. And on the other side, there is a lot of things that from the IPO process, a year down, things change. Sometimes the information you put out is no longer valid or the strategy in that definition has changed because regulation changed or something else has changed the transparency that you have to put out there has to be made sure as well. Thank you for for that top three reasons. And uh, in your piece,
0: you also write that to ensure a smooth IPO, appropriate steps must be taken also in terms of like mitigating risks and managing investors' expectations. So let me just ask you, what, what role then does IR play in that risk management? How can they manage risk and how much does it depend on, on the IR professional and how much does it lie within the C-suite or senior executives?
4: In order to actually find the risks within the company, you would be working that station, you would be working that area. That's you know the best way of finding out what risks are in the company. But as an IRO, you have the investment community in front of you. They've talked to hundreds and hundreds of companies and they will have... A situation or they would have known of something and will ask you about risks that not the obvious ones you know not the not currency or interest rate or country risk and you know, not the usual suspects but maybe something that's more sector driven or something that is very specific to certain countries or very specific to certain uh, companies and it's the IRO that A, has to know about the risks and actually deliver how it is uh, mitigated within the company. And B, it can take the risks back to the board and the executive suit and let them know, hey, this is something that's out there. Do we have something like that in our company? Do Are we facing something like that? And, of course, we talked
0: about risks, and with risks, there comes uh, compliance. And uh, with all the regulations, for example, in, in the ESG space, um, and, uh, you know, continuous updates, continuous new proposals, delays, look at countries like the US is still waiting on uh, uh, on the uh, SEC to finalise this uh, ESG disclosure and, Rule um how how can companies still uh, newly um IPO'd or in the process of one an IPO and leverage IR on this front and ensuring they are on top of regulations and and they are
4: compliant. Sure. So um, experienced IRO will already know all of the uh necessities or all of the details for the regulation so if the company was to miss on something it's the IRO obviously that will go ahead and ensure that things are complied with and that the company complies with whatever is necessary but at the same time now um, when the company goes public not all of them uh, have sustainability already in their strategies yeah uh, yeah. their programs, yeah. Exactly. So that means they have to start out from ground zero. They wouldn't even necessarily have corporate governance best practices done either. So there's a lot of things that suddenly becomes necessary because the investor is going to ask for it. Mm-hmm. But again, you have to make sure that internally, all the participants are aware that there's something that they need that they need to do. So when, when we look at sustainability, for example, you have to make sure that everybody knows what sustainability means and it's not just a corporate social forest. responsibility project. Yeah. It's not just a project, you know, or it's not just a green environmental issue. <laughs> uh, we have to speak the same language, you know, that's that's very important too. So a lot of the terms that are being used in sustainability are just being thrown out there, but not everybody knows what is behind it. So you have to understand the wording, but you also have to understand what is meant by it when the outside or when sustainability-related topics come up, what is actually meant by it. And then you have to ensure that you collect information, data, accordingly that would fit into these certain wordings languages. Okay. Now, of course, with that, you also have standards and initiatives, and you need a sustainability champion to lead you through it. If you don't have somebody on board, you'll probably just use a consultant to actually start creating within the company your sustainability aspects you know your principles your philosophies you start with you know your working group you have somebody from the executive team assigned to sustainability you have a board level commitment a committee built um, or created just for sustainability and then you work on your strategy your framework your action plans You know, you look at the roadmap that you need to be doing that fits into the corporate strategy or into the growth strategy that you put out there. And of course, with that, again, the IRO has to make sure, listen, we're doing this. It's not just the project. So what this means is, A, the company is going to pay for this every year. There is going to be a budget need for this every year. And the budget will probably increase every year. And B, you will become more and more transparent when you do this, you know, and you will be questioned with all the data, all the information that you put out there. Yeah. And that becomes, you know, more and more important.
0: Well, so just to recap, so for companies who have to, you know, start from scratch to build their ESG story and narrative, the first, your advice is that the first thing they need to do is understand the actual significance and etymology of the word sustainability before they even start crafting and developing anything around it, correct? Yes. Okay, thank you. And just, uh, you know, before we we, we close and wrap things up, I wanted to talk with you about shareholder targeting for IPOs and what are the uh, challenges for new companies in this space, because they don't have a lot of of a track record, as you say, of, of
4: experience. Well, shareholder targeting was much easier before MIFID II. You had a lot of conferences yeah. you could attend, you know, as a small or mid-company. You had a lot of analysts that would cover you. You would go to these conferences. You would have your analysts use your corporate access. And, but now after MIFID II, that, is, that has changed because on the one side, you don't have as many analysts anymore. And more and more companies actually started paying for their... Research yeah. uh, so that there is something out there for investors to read on if they want to. So you have the analyst issue on the one side. Then, uh, because you're a small and mid company, you don't you don't get invited to conferences anymore. So as an IPO company, as a newly listed company, nobody's going to invite you because nobody, no investor is going to pay to see you. <laughs> Uh, so we have that dilemma there, what an IRO can do. So for you know a situated and established company, usually you would go back in time, I don't know, five years, 10 years and see who you've talked to before, reach out to them again, say, hey, do you want to catch up? That works. But a, a newly listed company doesn't have that. They, so a lot of times they will have to make use of different tools or they have to make use of... Um, like IR solutions providers, consultancies. And it's um, these type of tools and groups that will actually bring you closer to investors. But it's the IRO that then again has to have already some relationship with investors to reach out quicker. That always works. But then for new, like for me in this case, I'm new to the sector also, There is obviously other funds and other institutions that are going to be interested in a renewable energy company. So I have to reach out to other things than, you know, the regular Bloombergs and refinitives and actually use some tools and find uh, information on institutions that fit me. And of course, that's much harder than when you do it for a situated company, again, because you don't have the historical information. Okay. Thank you,
0: Mugi, for being with us today. Also, I mean, just a note for our listeners, we are recording this in a very particular week for Turkey. Um, So double thanks to you for making it on such a difficult time. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. Thanks
0: for having me.
5: Feedback is a key metric to evaluate performance, success and impact of companies' long-term objectives and strategies. Feedback is a top metric used by IR teams around the world to measure the quality of their company's IR programs. But what other metrics do IR professionals consider the most important beyond feedback? Find out by reading the latest IR benchmarking report by IR Magazine. Compare how teams of all cap sizes gain essential investor feedback on their IR programs. Discover how IR is viewed by senior management. Find out how COVID-19 has changed IR benchmarking in the new normal. And more. Read the latest IR benchmarking report, available to subscribers, on irmagazine.com.
6: Welcome to IR Pulse, the segment where we talk to IROs, analysts, and other executives about the evolution of IR. This month, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Katie Perry, GM at IRInnovation at Public.com. Welcome back to The Ticket, Katie.
3: Hi, James. It's good to be with you again.
6: Thank you very much for joining us. Katie, your new research digs into the ways in which retail investors prefer to receive information from IR teams. Tell us, what were some of the key findings and what are some of the efficient ways for IR teams to translate their standard comms to retail investors?
3: At Pulse, we work with IR teams to help them understand retail investor behavior and engage them more effectively. So given that, we're always looking into the behaviors, preferences, and attitudes of this audience. So that's what this data is reflecting. And what we found in terms of how retail investors want to be communicated with are a couple of themes that emerged. The first is access. So 61 of retail investors that we pulled said that having more access to company IR teams and leadership actually increases their confidence in the stock. So the very act of demonstrating that you care about this audience and that you're giving them a direct path to information increases their confidence. And number two is related to the idea of access is the type of access. We get a lot of questions all the time from our partners asking, you know, should our CEO be engaging retail investors on social media? There's always a little bit of of trepidation around that, uh, around compliance issues. There's added work to that. So what was interesting about what we found on the subject of CEO access was that surprisingly, most retail investors say that seeing an exec, so a CEO, CFO on social media does not actually materially increase their confidence. 40% did say it had an impact, but the majority said it did not. So that's another example of, you know, there's ways to give this access without needing to set up, you know, a a special channel on social where the executive is actually out there. And then finally, the third theme that emerged was the idea of like what formats people want to receive information. So our findings showed that when IR teams optimize their materials for the audience, um, that's most effective with retail shareholders. Obviously the existing kind of systems for, for communicating have been optimized for institutional. What our retail investors say was that they want more context around the company, its industry, the financial terms used. 45% said they really want information in new formats. So think of video, podcasts, shorter briefs. So the takeaways for this are, are kind of a couple things. One, finding ways of direct distribution to retail, finding ways to get in front of those audiences at scale. And that's a lot of what we do at Public. And also find ways to translate the content you're already creating for investors into formats that resonate with retail so maybe it's a a shorter brief of an announcement maybe it's a podcast we do a lot of this type of thing on public for example an executive might come on and do a 15 minute retail recap after earnings so there's ways to kind of do these things without adding a ton of work to to the plate especially given how lean most ir teams are
6: absolutely maximum efficiency for IR teams under a lot of pressure and with uh, no doubt budgets cut as we progress this uncertain year. Thank you very much. But the data shows that there is a significant intersection between someone who may be a customer of your company and someone who is a shareholder, uh, specifically for consumer-facing brands. What does this mean for the ways in which IR teams and marketing teams collaborate?
3: I love this topic because it starts to get to a place where you're looking at the people that engage with your company more holistically. So Who are the people most engaged with your products or services? Uh, Most likely, if you're a consumer brand, it's your shareholders. It's the people that are both buying your products, but also investing in your company. Um, And there's data that backs this up. So 70% of the investors we surveyed have at least one stock in their portfolio that reflects a product or service that they use often as a consumer. And then on the flip side, 83% said that they sometimes or frequently will become a customer after becoming a shareholder in the company. So there's a lot of interesting interplay there. Of course, this is unlocking a lot of big opportunities but also challenges when you think of, you know, IR and marketing functions are usually separated, they have different goals. Um and so a lot of companies are trying to figure out, you know, how to collaborate on these efforts and really activate that that core segment of people who are your loyal customers and your shareholders.
6: I wouldn't what are the key signals that reach out investors tend to base their investment decisions on? Why does this matter to IR teams?
3: Like most investors, it's really a mix. But what might be surprising to listeners here is that buzz and virality is not the primary reason people are factoring in when, when making a decision. Um, so following volatility last year, our research really showed that the markets are shaping more diligent investment decisions. So 63% of the investors we pulled have spent more time researching this year versus one year prior. The signals that are really standing out based on our research are companies that can demonstrate strong evidence of sustainable growth. The second most cited was resilience amid volatility. So they want to see how companies are navigating kind of headwinds in the markets. And then also other factors include confidence in the leadership team evidence of continued innovation and competitive differentiation. So it's a multitude of things, but what's a little different in 2023 versus a couple years ago was that these factors are more actually tied to fundamentals and belief in the company versus what's buzzy at the moment.
6: Fascinating. And I guess the grain of perhaps common thought, that belief over buzz, very interesting indeed. The number of IPOs, uh, specs has obviously slowed following volatility in 2022. How has this impacted retail investors' interest in new entrants to the market? How can IPOs, SPACs think about building awareness and connecting with retail investors prior to entering those public markets?
3: We were really interested to dig into this one. And what we found was that while volatility has caused about 37% of investors to be less open to investing in IPOs or SPACs, Actually, over 60% said they're just as interested, if not more interested. And so going back to the idea of like diligence, they really want to understand where these businesses kind of line up in the market, which sectors, who the leadership is. And again, they're they're leaning more into research. And so there's more of an onus on new entrants to the market, SPACs, to really tell a story there um, that will allow retail investors to, to gather information and make decisions. 63% of the retail investors we polled said that sector or category-based content was really, really helpful to them. Not just educating on your business, but on the, the space you occupy uh, in the markets. So an example being, we work with a renewable energy company on a content series and it's all about clean energy, renewables. They are They are owning that content, but they're really educating investors around that topic. And going back to the earlier point about investors really craving context, we've seen that if you can help investors improve their understanding of the market, you will cut through the noise and really stand out in your category, even if you're a new name in the market.
6: Fascinating and topical insights for IROs everywhere. Many thanks indeed for sharing them with the Tigger on behalf of And Do join us again, Katie, many thanks indeed.
3: Thanks, James.
0: You have been listening to the latest episode of the Digger podcast brought to you by IR magazine in partnership with our sponsor, Pulse by Public.com. Huge thanks for their support. You can learn more about Pulse at Public.com forward slash Pulse. Thanks also to everyone who took the time of being with us today. For our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and subscribe. Leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, thanks for listening.